Hello, and thank you for listening. I'm Jay Lemons. Welcome to Leaders on Leadership, brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. <clears throat> Purpose of our podcast is to share the stories of the people and the forces that have shaped leaders in higher ed and to learn more about their thoughts on leadership in the academy. Delighted today to be joined by John Castine. John is the President Emeritus of the University of Virginia, where he served as the seventh president from 1990 to 2010. John previously served as Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Virginia and was president at the University of Connecticut from 1985 to 1990. He's been a board member and a leader of countless higher ed organizations and has been a director um, uh, for the American Council on Education, the Association of Governing Boards, uh, on and on and on, uh, uh, service to many, many higher ed associations was also um, the chair of uh, the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, among other things. After his presidency, John continued to serve as a university professor until his retirement um, this past December, 2020. He holds all three of his academic degrees in English from University of Virginia. It's a special personal pleasure for me to have John as a guest here. As my wife, Marcia and I had the privilege and honor of serving as members of the president's office staff at the University of Virginia during his early years in Charlottesville. And I continued to work for John as the chancellor of university's only branch campus, the college at Wise for another eight and a half years. Indeed, John Castine was my boss, is my mentor, my friend, and has been a great champion throughout my adult life. John, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you for including me. Well, I'm going to dive right in here. I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm half tempted to uh, go off script. Um, I'm reading that you were the seventh president of the University of Virginia, um, you know, reminds me of a couple of remarkable things. Number one, UVA did not have a president until Edwin Alderman came in 1907, as I recall. Um, but I, I uh, uh, and, and um, you know, there probably are still people who think that was a better system uh, to work by faculty committee than having a president. But I remember your first meeting um, uh, with Senator John Warner, um, who uh, quipped to you, John, you and I have a lot in common. Um, you're the seventh president of the University of Virginia, and I was the seventh husband of Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> I don't know why that one stays with me. 20, 30 years later. <laughs> it's a great line, and that is, in fact, what he said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this we're going to be. This is going to be a long episode here. I can already tell. <laughs> well, one of the goals that, that that we have for the program is to really invite and ask people to reflect and to consider their own pathways, with a hope that um, some of your own journey will be an inspiration for others. And and John. I, of course, know some of your story, but I would love for you to share with your listeners some of the people, the events, and the opportunities that forged you um, to become the person and the extraordinary leader you became in your journey in higher education. Yeah, I've thought about this a little bit, Jay, and I, I do have a couple of uh, cases to talk about, I guess. Uh, one person who was very important in the way I came to think about becoming a university president and then later to think about being a university president was the late Henry Winkler, who was the provost at Rutgers and was president at the University of Cincinnati, of which he was an alumnus. Uh, Henry was an historian, 
he is the author of a number of standard books having to do with the American Republic and its formation, but also he worked with his son later in his life on some collaborative work. Yeah. Uh, striking kind of intellect, a man who thought very broadly, who had focused on the nature of leadership in times before that became an academic study uh, topic. Uh, Henry, I knew initially because uh, I was uh, a member of the Board of Trustees of the College Entrance Examination Board in the late 70s and the early 80s. Uh, eventually, I chaired it and uh, followed after Henry and some work that he'd done there. I was struck by how broadly sympathetic he was with the people who worked around him, uh, by the way in which he focused on work as the common denominator within the academic community. He was an enabler. He understood what was required to, to help individual persons become their best. Uh, at one time, I'll tell a story on Jay, if you'll forgive me. At one time, Jay had taken over a, a chaotic situation and needed I thought a mentor to help him work it out uh, was not a situation of his making at all. He'd gone to try to resolve things. And Henry, uh, when, when Jay first went to the college at Wise, put a tremendous amount of thought and I guess sympathy, Jay, into the work that, that Jay was doing. And if my memory is right, he became a member of your the college's board, the advisory entity to Jay, uh, committed himself to the institution because he had uh, a sort of a deep grasp of what the, the chancellor was all about. Uh, I liked the fact that he was intellectually engaged as well as emotionally engaged. I admired the way in which he understood that his role as president of Cincinnati uh, was not to rebuild the university or to replace it with something else that he imagined, but instead to build an institution on its own foundations over and over and over. He was interested in the urban role of that university. He was focused on what it took to serve an evolving urban region uh, from a university that was itself engaged in becoming something else. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of person, Jay, whom I have ad admired and understood. I was the admissions dean at UVA in the late 70s and early 80s and worked uh, with a woman named Jean Rayburn, who's another one I would mention. Yeah. Jean said to tell died young. Uh, she was, in fact, herself the dean for a time after I left to do something else. But Jean was... Uh, enabling in the, for the odd reason that she didn't suffer fools gladly. And it wasn't so much that, let's call the person she labeled fools, let's call them that. It wasn't so much that she said, you are this or that, as that she herself registered inside. The net result of the judgments that she was making in the course of working with other people. And then in the sort of the quiet of, of our offices after the front door was closed, 
we would hear her commentary on the day. She had a capacity for humor. She had a, an extraordinary range of, of experience and little or no self-importance. She saw herself as a, a leader who was first and foremost a servant of the institution. Uh, that grasp of leadership became also a topic of academic study uh, after Jean's time. But I found every day with her instructive. Uh, she knew the value of time off. She had a knack for diffusing bad situations. Uh, different kind of intellect entirely from Henry Winkler's, but similar to Henry's in that she was tremendously engaged intellectually with the work she was doing, with the people she was serving. And she had aspirations that were built on what she was doing intellectually from, from minute to minute. She would work with students and imagine them 20 years later. And she was a, a lifelong advisor of many who, uh, like me, uh, eventually mourned her early death. Uh, so there's another kind of person. And then finally, I uh, was Virginia's education secretary during a period when the two-party system in the modern sense was just evolving. And I worked with a couple of really extraordinary legislative leaders. One was a, a Quaker woman from an area in Northern Virginia that had uh, a history of Quaker settlement. It's still a Quaker region. And the other was an urban politician representing the area that became eventually the modern Northern Virginia complex. And I was always struck by the way in which those two could find common ground. Uh, the two of them could, uh, could define purposes for government that were more than, than political. And yet both of them understood uh, instinctively that the kind of government that you, you see in a state capital or in the US capital is ultimately a political process. That people are constantly negotiating partial settlements, negotiating some way to, to move the, uh, the case down the road a bit and then to pick it up again later on. Those are examples, Jay, but they're people whose work I, I watched closely. Uh, the governor I worked for, Chuck Robb, uh, had the same kind of influence on me because I, was, I wasn't inside his mind as he made his decisions, but I was able to watch, to understand from, from step to step what he was doing and why. Uh, he, Actually, he's just published his, uh, his memoirs, uh, a book called mm -hmm. In the Arena. And that book, which I have not read, but from the reports of it, that book appears to be about his realization that once one puts oneself into the public space, one stays there. That it's all but impossible to be in and then out, uh, or worse yet, in, out, in. He saw it as a lifelong commitment and he lived the commitment uh, as has also his wife who was uh, President Johnson's daughter, yeah. Linda. 
uh, extraordinary people who realize that they have given up something of themselves in order to be what they are as public people. Yeah. Uh, presidents, deans, others in leadership positions within our institutions are ultimately public people. Yeah. And uh, there are both benefits and prices for that. But in any event, uh, it's a reality that one needs to know if one is going to be yeah. a president or a provost or a dean or whatever. Who are the legislators that, that you mentioned earlier? Well, one was Abe Brault. Uh, Abe was uh, one of the people who shaped Northern Virginia as a uh, distinctive region. Uh, last I heard, I hope he's still alive and well, but last I heard he was uh, in Florida, I think, and retired. Uh, he had a knack for uh, for communicating experience in a way that was useful. Uh, the woman was Dorothy McDermott. Uh, Dorothy was a Loudoun County Quaker, yeah. as was her husband, Mac. And the two of them were a team that functioned without any player staying, uh, straying into the other player's space. Yeah. Uh, Dorothy was... Uh, gracious. She was a, um, a natural leader, but not one who gave any impression of having sought it, and yet she had run for office repeatedly. She had a kind of moral compass that made her a sort of still point in the middle of the, the chaos that goes on in the legislature as the entity settles down and gets ready to work. Uh, they were, uh, she and Mac were, they were great spirits and great intellects. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. And I, and I, very unusual, Jay. You don't find many, I haven't found many elected public leaders who had Dorothy's temperament. That's part of why one remembers Dorothy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and where you started, thank you for celebrating and remembering. Henry and and what a great influence he came to be uh, on me. Um, you know, we didn't call it coaching, um, but I, you know, I'll 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 never forget your saying to me. You know, there's, there's some complicated issues to confront. And I'm going to help you sort of work them out. I think, but I think you may need somebody to talk to from time to time. I mean it, and. Um, I, it's a reminder for me, uh, one of the things that I'm trying to encourage is, um, and I have not connected it to my own experience until this moment, John, but how important coaching can be, especially for people new to leadership or new in leadership roles. And that's exactly what Henry was for, uh, uh, for me um, uh, and, and, and for us. And um, he did come to be invested in that place in a way that uh, that lived um, far beyond, you know, the eight and a half years that we spent there. Um, yeah. And um, yet he and and B, um, you know, just a, extraordinary people, a wonderful story. And 
Um, I, it makes me think that I'd like to uh, find a way to put this podcast in the hands of, 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 of his children, Alan and Karen, who I think would uh, delight in, in our reflecting and remembering their dad. Um, wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, uh, John, you've been at the forefront of the civil rights movement throughout, you know, the most of your life, if not the whole of it. I, I would wish that it would be valuable for you in this moment where um, it feels like we got a lot more journey ahead of us than we have behind us to reflect on the role that higher ed should play in making this that more perfect union that our founders imagined. Yeah, I, to come at that topic, Jay, I need to explain one thing about my own background. I grew up in the Eastern part of Virginia in a city, Portsmouth, which is a minor place, but it is the site of one of the, well, the most significant American shipyard is there. It's a, it's a place of people who uh, in wartime build ships and similar things and peacetime maintain them. Uh, that area was, as candidly all of Virginia was, uh, rocked by the political movement that was called Massive Resistance, an organized attempt at the, stop, at the top of Virginia politics to prevent integration of Virginia schools, even to the extent of closing schools whose local school boards voted lawfully, I should say, but voted to desegregate the schools. Uh, when I was a, a, a teenager, first couple of years, years of high school in particular, we could not understand why neighboring schools, schools that were rivals of, of mine, uh, were closed. We had some of the most extraordinary people come as temporary students. Uh, the, the state's position was that students who were displaced by the closure of schools in one region could not lawfully be enrolled in other public schools. They were trying to freeze the children in place without schooling. It was shocking. Yeah. And I remember meeting a pair of twins. I, I, I've lost their names now, but two girls, identical twins, who would sit in an area where I sat. My principal had admitted these children without the authority to do it. They would sit where I sat in the classroom and explain to me, others who would listen, what was going on, and they got it. Uh, they understood that the purpose was to deny education itself to people who were not uh, complacent uh, in this time. So I, I grew up with a, and I should say also, you know, I heard this in another form at home at night at the dinner table. My parents were scandalized. They were they, they saw no uh, defense at all to what the state was doing. Um, I heard other people who said the state leaders were right and so on. It was complicated as I, as I grew up because in other areas of public activity, I was working with people who had been leaders on the wrong side of that issue. Hmm. And uh, some of them were at various times very kind to me, good to me. And yet there was this uh, festering wound 
that um, seemed not to have a solution. The solution that I saw, uh, beginning with my realization that there really weren't the, the public schools had begun to desegregate, not on a big scale, but had begun uh, when I started college in 1961. There were two African American students in my class. There'd been one in the class before me. Uh, that was it. Wow. And I had various uh, engagements with the ongoing scars from massive resistance. Uh, had a girlfriend who was uh, in college in uh, Farmville, which was one of the areas where the local governments refused to reopen their schools. Right. And where schools were closed for a number of years at that time. With African-American children taught in the Sunday school annexes of a couple of the churches. And Caucasian children enrolling in what was called in those days a corrugated academy. That particular one became a, a pretty good regional prep school. Yeah. But in the, in the early years, they were simply ways to try to keep white children enrolled uh, in schools that were themselves um, racially segregated. Then uh, in the late 60s, I was sort of plucked out of my uh, graduate school teaching assignments to become an assistant dean in the college. Uh, I had a faculty friend who was such a dean, and they needed someone suddenly after some vacancy developed. And the dean, who was a very cagey old guy, this was Irby Coffin, <laughs> and Irby would not like my calling him an old guy, but he was an older man to me. Uh, Irby from time to time talked to me about these things, including his vision that things really had to change, that the, uh, the segregation of the academy was ultimately a destructive force in the larger in, uh, institution of government in the, the state's culture and so on. Uh, I began to understand that this affected the quality of learning for the students I was dealing with. I saw very, very few minority students in the assistant team. But I realized that, and that this place was also, by the way, in those days, a single sex institution, basically. There is a cost to those who do enroll of having a sterile academy where you don't have a mixture of ethnicities and national origins and race and so on. Uh, but there's another in what was in those days the, the uh, almost sacred tradition of single sex education in a number of our national institutions. Yeah. It wasn't just UVA and, and earlier UNC and so on. Uh, it was Harvard and Yale and Princeton and so on. Yeah. Uh, an absolutely foolish way to educate people. And I became increasingly outraged about the, the separatism. I was given the job of advising uh, two women initially who'd been admitted as experiments to see whether women could deal in the rarefied atmosphere of this boys' school. <laughs> so I met the two women, you know, brilliant, focused, didn't need me. They knew what they wanted to take. All they needed was my signature on the card. And I remember thinking, 
this is probably a share of what this place has been missing. Uh, I eventually came back as a visiting professor to Virginia and went into the classroom the first day I was teaching whatever I was doing and noticed that all the students were sitting toward the front except for a group of boys in the back. In those days, people came to class with coffee, a newspaper and a cigarette pack. And they sat in the back and they smoked and drank their coffee and read the paper. There were a few back there who did that. They were the ones whose best hope was to make a C minus. But the front half was participatory. And by that time, the, the co-education was advanced by then. By that time, the student body was beginning to look like what I'd experienced in California. Uh, they were competitive. They were eager. They were fascinated or they were horrified or whatever was appropriate or possible in response to the material. Very different intellectual climate from what I had known as a student, from what the men in the back of the room were knowing at that time. Uh, rolling forward somewhat, uh, the then president, Frank Hereford, asked me to leave Berkeley and to come back to Virginia to be the admissions student. And I hadn't really put all this stuff together, but I got to, he, he said to me, look, this is where you build the university. If you don't like what it is, this is the place to build it from the bottom up. And he proceeded to tell me about the need for diversity, about the value of access that is open to persons who achieve the academic uh, standard and so on. Uh, it was a 30 minute lesson in the mission of a great university. And he said, we're not there. And you can make this contribution to, to bringing us there. Uh, by that time, I'd begun to see racial separations in higher education and, and gender separations as matters of equity. Uh, political ownership of what we now call in, in a broader sense, civil rights. And I guess that in, in a sense, I probably by that time been radicalized with regard to the function of higher education and building a, a population. But in any event, in company with Gene Rayburn, whom I mentioned, with a fellow named Jack Blackburn, who also was Dean Supplement, uh, really felt sort of a mission from God. We, we were going to do something substantial. We were going to change this place one integer at a time. Uh, I think all of us became increasingly unhappy with old ways of doing and being. And all of us came to believe that uh, a great university constantly evolves from its bottom up, that uh, the world of learning is not an ivory tower. It's something quite different. And uh, that discovery, which, you know, I made family by family as I sat with the parents of African-American students and tried to persuade them, look at us or look at Virginia Tech or look at University of Richmond or William and Mary, whatever might be of interest. But don't look only at the 
box into which our culture placed this young person at birth. Let's build on the parents' own uh, determination for their children and give young learners uh, the broadest possible choice of, of places to, to go and to do that. Um, got involved with the complexities of the financial aid system in those days because our our country was very backward in that. Uh, I was working on a couple of projects involving education in the UK and realized that the constraints that I was hearing night after night and college nights and in rural county high schools and so on didn't exist in other countries. That our national government has simply not lived up to its responsibility and the states were, if anything, even worse. Uh, I began to realize the value of, uh, I guess that's a practitioner reports to the public in the form of op-ed pieces and so on. I started writing them as, as I thought of something that seemed to be appropriate to, to, to change things. And when I became uh, education secretary in Virginia, I was working for a governor who had a tremendous vision of change and who accomplished uh, tremendous things as a governor. But one of the things that I remember is that he, he was focused on what he saw and I saw by this time as a disadvantage enforced on children if their schools did not offer and I came to believe require academically rigorous programs for all students. Yeah. Uh, students who miss algebra one by probably the ninth grade in those days had no hope whatsoever of going to a highly selective college. Yeah. Students who missed it by the eighth grade had no hope of becoming engineers because the sequencing of courses, the things that came after algebra one, to use that instance, that sequencing was not open to children whose schools had failed to push them in the direction of their optimal uh, performance. I, uh, as Secretary of Education, I worked on a general overhaul of the curricula that we were offering in our schools. I didn't realize at the time that those are problems you have to solve every day. I thought, okay, we'll do this and then we can move on to something else. It's not how it works. Uh, the, the constant renorming of curriculum that you expect to serve the broadest possible population. Uh, the, the constant indexing of achievement against what people do in other places, other states, other nations. The constant attention to the rights of minority children, yeah. uh, of women who may be caught in the tyranny of a system where the most prestigious institutions serve primarily males. Lesser reality now, but it, um, 50 years ago, this is the way it was. Yeah. Uh, there's a sense in which I guess what I learned in those years in state politics was that you have to fight these tyrannies every day and you have to do it by way of an affirmative alternative with a tyranny that displaces the tyranny and opens up opportunity. Now, as to, to 
why that made me a political liberal or why that made me a, a, an advocate of civil rights and most people weren't seeing civil rights and the issues. They did it because you see the cases where you fail. Uh, you sit with a student who's not going to be able to do whatever would be the optimal thing for that student. And you learn over time that your job as a teacher or as a, a dean or whatever involves constantly opening up the door that's closed to the student who's in front of you and preparing to open it for the next one also. Um, in a way, co-education was too easy. It, seem, it seems like never, never land, I think, to young people looking at the system now not imagining what used to be the case with regard to the educational rights of women. Yeah. But, you know, I'm still wow. around and I'm here to tell you it's the way it was. African-American students, Asian students, Asian-American students. Jewish uh, students. Jewish students. Yeah, but uh, no, you've been a tireless champion and, and I, you know, I wanna thank you and, 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 and applaud your, courage um, because I know I bore personal witness to it um, repeatedly and and but I I'm, I'm really a great takeaway from this is that um, it's never once and done it's um, not and, and you also have to let good fight yeah um, I didn't have that many enemies because of the positions I was taking or the actions I was trying to develop but there were some yeah and there were certainly people who thought that educational equity was insanity. That uh, the notion of a civil system that worked uh, properly and appropriately for African-American or Hispanic-American or other students, that that was a daydream or something silly. There were even people who saw that as a threat, uh, who imagined that the American cake was of a finite and fixed size. When in fact, you know, the, the opening of opportunity opens it up infinitely all around and on into the future. Uh, we don't live in a finite sum culture. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, finally, I appreciated your invoking the word radicalization. Hmm. Um, uh, in, in part because, um, for all the clay feet um, of our founders and of Mr. Jefferson, he was pretty radical in his beliefs about um, the benefits of the general diffusion of knowledge. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, um, you know, I, uh, I uh, uh, you know, walking in your shadow, being in that place, um, uh, certainly, um, had a huge impact um, on on me and my own thinking, and I and I you know again, um, uh, thank you for what, uh, what you've done. Let's let's switch gears here, um, and and I, you know I I'd, I'd like to have you spend a minute or two just talking about what makes a good leader, and and let me clarify, I mean good um, in the sense of virtuous, effective, and successful, not grade B. I think part of it is the capacity to live with one's own self-criticisms, to see one's 
weaknesses or failings for what they are and to determine to move on uh, not regardless because you, you work always to remedy what you see as flawed in yourself. Uh, I think a good leader in, in our system inevitably is one who is able to imagine and expect ultimately the best in others. Yeah. Uh, I don't know a, a flawless rule for choosing people to become part of a team. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of hit or miss judgment in that. I have to confess that I have thought it was important to make one's own decisions and not simply stand behind a process that might say that somebody else chose this person. I, at some point early on, came to believe that displacing all who were there before was not a good idea. Yeah. But the human cost was very high. The institutional cost was yeah. higher. Um, well, in fact, your arrival, and you were certainly at the midpoint in your, you were fully formed, highly accomplished professional when you returned to the university in 1990, but I'll never forget your very first personnel move, which was essentially to renew um, your colleagueship with Leonard Sandridge. Yeah. And um, that was not about sweeping clean that was about fortifying and unleashing the extraordinary potential um, yeah. that Leonard exercised over the balance of the career that you both shared. Yeah, Leonard uh, was the chief financial officer and then we evolved in the direction of the chief operating officer structure. Did it, frankly, because we needed skills and values and whatnot that I, had not lived long enough to develop and never would. And I was concerned about judgments made by a single mind when in fact there ought to be multiple participants in major decisions. Leonard had a similar commitment to mine with regard to the equity rights of women, of, of members of racial minorities, and so on within the university. I didn't see, I still don't see an alternative to that. Um, the alternative I, I, I once heard described as the me first school of government. Uh, I think the alternative is just not tolerable, not imaginable yeah. in our culture. And that the openness to qualities of others that, um, that we value, that we valued in those days in running the university. I think current uh, leaders do also. But that openness of opportunity and, and equitable distribution of the, the uh, capacity to change things, that uh, Leonard was a very important part of that. Uh, 
the way you organize as an incoming president, I think ought to evolve and not be a preconceived pattern when you come in. Uh, I think it takes a little bit of time to make some sort of early judgment of the people and the structures around you if you're the new president. I did, uh, when I first came back to Charlottesville, I, I contracted with a very fine consulting firm in New York for some help in organizing the central administrative functions. I don't know that the help itself changed the functions, but it did empower the people. Mm -hmm. uh, people turned the consulting exercise into a kind of graduate short course in how to be the central administrative part of a university. Uh, I was brought in by people who wanted a more executive and a less administrative approach to running the university. Um, that made sense to me at the time. Over the course of the 20 years here at UVA, my grasp of that changed as people came and went as we attempted various kinds of administrative um, arrangements. I've been struck since leaving the position of president by the number of ways in which changes that I would have thought would be permanent, durable things turned out to last only a couple of years after I was done. We had uh, a real sense of mission with regard to uh, the American University as a player in international university yeah. arrangements. And uh, I learned a great deal in, in sort of the middle years when I was president by getting to know people like a, an extraordinarily talented principal, he was called in those days, of the University of Edinburgh. Uh, similarly, a couple of the universities in Hong Kong, one in Singapore, uh, places with remarkably similar and yet remarkably different uh, missions. The connections that, the points of contact that let others and I uh, let, let us learn what we did from those entities or people. They all seem to collapse very quickly after I, I finished them. I don't know why. Uh, Interesting. I never, I never heard a conversation about it. I never heard anything to say that it was a good or a bad decision to back away. But uh, the institution did, so. In, you know, in the month before I left the presidency, I said, this is a permanent characteristic place. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. You know, John, one of the things that I remember you saying to me a long time ago, and it was in, in a way um, about the, um, the, the, the sort of potential isolation or loneliness of leadership. Yeah. Uh, 
and I, I think I phrased the question something along the lines of, we feel like we're friendly with lots of people, but we're not sure who we're friends with. And you gave me a gift. Um, and, and, and it was, um, it was also you know, deeply meaningful at a personal level. You talked about the members of your team being um, extensions of your family. And that, um, uh, and, and I, it's sort of contrarian leadership advice um, in a way. Would maybe say a word or two about that? Well, I'm not sure that I have a structured response to that, Jay. It, it seems to me that one has to acknowledge the, the degree of mutual interdependence that exists yeah. within the president's office and between the president and the closest other leaders. When that's not there, the rest of it doesn't work. That's right. Uh, and there are plenty of people who are superb bosses and not so great at being tier below the boss or two tiers below the boss. Uh, you have to recognize that the relationships that that support you or sustain you include, I would say at best, deep measures of personal attachment, but that on the other hand, uh, individual persons have their own careers and their own futures to think about. Um, oh, it never, it also never impeded um, your um, holding um, us accountable. <laughs> no. no. On the other hand, Jay, I, I, I think I differ from colleagues whose work I respect tremendously and that I never found any special usefulness in things like uh, 360 degree evaluations and so on. The ultimate decisions have to do with results obtained and with the, the degree to which mutual confidences, mutual, each one believing in the other yeah. uh, exist. Um, I think I must have wasted a couple of years in the course of my time as president sitting through 360 sessions uh, <laughs> without ever believing they amounted to anything. Uh, I, I'm not a, an expert on many things of that sort, so I won't pretend that, but I, well, just didn't, I didn't see the practical value of it. You know, um, that, um, I hear you, and yet I'll, I'll go back to one of the things that you engaged, and this was probably year five, six, or seven, somewhere deep into my time in WISE, you asked Henry to come and to help um, engage in some conversations um, in a way that um, it really was a 360. And, and, the, and the, we didn't use that language then probably, but um, uh, you know, in the hands of a measured wise person, um, it was really constructive feedback that was delivered to me by someone who I valued and I trusted and, um, and, you know, we all benefit from loving critics. Um, hey, listen, I want to, you know, want to move us into a lightning round. Um, you've been so generous with your time and, and I, you know, uh, you know we'll find an, another occasion to, um, 
uh, uh, to, to prod and, and, and push you a little bit. But let, let, let's go to um, uh, this lightning round. Who's most influenced you, John? Uh, this is not rocket science, my mother. I, I was hoping very much that you'd say that. Um, just yeah. having had the privilege of knowing her and, um, yeah. and seeing that influence. Yeah, she was a uh, person with the highest imaginable standards for herself and for her offspring, but with a broad capacity for tolerating human strengths and weaknesses where they occur. Yeah. Uh, she was, I used the word radicalized earlier on in this conversation. If there was a, a single radical influence with regard to my view of what was basic and fundamental about the American experience, it was she. Um, no sympathy at all with people who would uh, constrict or take away the rights of any, any yeah. person in these United States. Um, great believer in America, but a great critic of <laughs> America's leaders most of the time when I was growing up. A uh, very sympathetic parent, and on the other hand, she uh, she withheld her her judgments uh, when she was in her final illness. She said to me one day that she had been thinking about me and had decided that I was probably okay. <laughs> I thought, "Wow, we've turned a corner here." <laughs> I'm sure there was a curl um, uh, in, in her smile um, at that moment. Um, yeah, what book has most influenced you? Oh, wow. Uh, a, a person with a great love of book? Yeah, um, I'm thinking. Uh, probably a group of four or five of William Faulkner's books where he writes through the kinds of issues that you and I have been discussing here, but the, the great books of the late 20s uh, for totally different reasons, probably um, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales uh, for the way in which he uh, provides a kind of encyclopedia of human temperaments and so on. And for the ironic ways in which he deals with pomposity and fundamental corruption and so on. Uh, I think Beowulf uh, was gonna be in here somewhere. Uh, yes and no. Um, the complexity of that poem is such that I've learned to be a little bit cautious about explaining yeah. how it works in my own experience because most people read translations, even good ones, the ones in the Norton anthologies, for example, and have a completely different grasp of what's going on there from what I have. Uh, an extraordinary uh, 13th century Icelandic saga which is the saga of the people of the Loxodal, which is the valley of the Salmon River in the northwestern corner of Iceland. Uh, 
on a certain day, for no reason anybody understands, a person, uh, evidence says it was a woman, sat down in a place where nothing like a saga had ever been written and proceeded to start writing. And in a culture that appears to be male-dominated and very much intro introverted in its issues, she wrote this vast, rambling account of a culture dominated by a woman. And uh, it's, it's just the most extraordinary thing. Um, you wonder how did she, where'd she ever get the idea uh, of a fiction yeah. that fits into the history of her people so that you can't disprove the fiction. Wow. And in the process creates this, this, this woman who fills up the culture. She's, uh, she's not perfect. She's not especially kind. Uh, she has a husband who is a failure, so she contrives to have him murdered right outside the bedroom door. Uh, on the other hand, she, uh, she also dominates and pushes her people toward um, excellence, toward values that they wouldn't have had without her. Hmm. Uh, that this writer is anonymous is really part of what I find fascinating. Yeah. The only, uh, I've been reading Icelandic Old Norse texts for pushing 50 years, I guess. The only one I've ever read that appeared to have been written by a woman. And yet this thing just sort of screams woman consciousness uh, at you. Fabulous. What was your fondest memory of your undergraduate experience on grounds at the university? Hmm. Uh, well, this is a story of a different time, a different place, but I, I finished up the, um, I took a, what would be called in the UK, a second class honors degree, a degree with high honors in a scheme where there was highest high and just honors. Finished up that set of examinations and it was a very formal kind of place. Uh, a professor I admired and who had chaired the committee said to me, uh, let's walk up to the faculty club and have a cup of coffee. I had this, this uh, epiphany walking up there. This is probably what people ought to be doing. And I remember thinking, why, why are we starting this now? Why haven't we been doing this for four years? It changed my, uh, yeah. well, it informed right there, my sense of optimal relations between faculty and students. Yeah. I, I love that story, John. Yeah, um, it reminds me that, you know, you taught um, regularly through all those years and um, um, in trying to support you, um, uh, the most stressful hours each week were the four to six hours before class. And, and you were always in your best mood um, uh, of, of the week, guaranteed coming out of class. <laughs> so, uh, 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 but yeah. Well, um, favorite tradition? Oh, wow.
I liked when I was at the University of Connecticut, the tradition of having students and faculty and people who worked in the boiler room and the president and so on meet once a month as the university senate, mm. not as the faculty senate or somebody else's something, but it was the university senate. It was, uh, I, I remember being puzzled the first couple of times I attended it because I was sitting next to uh, people who were not faculty senators. And I realized that this was a form of uh, collaborative self-governance that you don't find except in universities. New England town hall sort of flavor. It, it was very much that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I admired that tremendously. And I thought there's a model for everybody, yeah. which in fact, not everybody finds palatable, but no. it has a lot to do with equitable ownership yeah. of the institution and of its processes and so on. Uh, that Senate, and I, I've seen good Senates. Uh, I was a member of the Senate at Berkeley and, and uh, the period, you know, after Cambodia and so on, yeah. and uh, worked with the Senate in Charlottesville for 20 years with a lot of admiration for what they were doing. But this one at UConn was, was it had a kind of process command of the, of the university that I, I really admired. Yeah. I thought it was effective. Uh, it was crisp. I never saw anybody waste the Senate's time. People who had something to say realized that they were on a rare sort of space when they said it. And uh, I'm yeah. sure in any, in any deliberated body, there's, there are moments of silliness, but not many. Uh, and I don't remember one. Yeah. Hey, if you hadn't worked in higher education, if you had not found a calling in higher ed, what would you have done? Uh, I would most likely have gone to law school, but I didn't do that because that's what I was supposed to have done in the first place. <laughs> or I might have gone into the Navy because they, just the, the, the chance to be on and about ships in the sea it always appealed to me yeah. uh, but the truth is I never really went into that uh, a career I, when I retired here I, I was asked how did you go about getting various jobs the truth is that jobs kind of hit me in the head like a thrown brick uh, I don't remember ever actively seeking one, except that I sent the usual letters out when I finished the PhD. In those days, you wrote 50 yeah. letters and you got five interviews. And if you were lucky, you got an offer somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but that was the end of it. After that, I had the luxury of being persuaded by people I respected that something was a good idea for me to do. Uh, it, it's 
it's raw coincidence. There's nothing special about my situation. I just happened to fall into that circumstance. Yeah. Well, it was four or five times in the course of my life. Thank you for answering those calls, though. Um, you know, I, I, as, we, as we wrap up here, um, I really like to close by asking you to share whatever you'd want about the distinctive qualities, if you will, the organizational DNA at that place that had, was the object of your attention for the longest time in your life, UVA. Yeah, you know, I always felt that it was imperfect, that it was worth prodding and, and jogging and so on. I always felt that it had a kind of representative value to people who grew up in my circumstances where my, you know, my dad's daily work clothes were khaki or denim. Uh, but I was, as a student and later, working alongside people of every conceivable kind. Uh, I came to college with the sort of foolish expectation that I would be working with uh, minority persons, that I would sit next to, I hadn't focused on the fact that it was a single sex college. It just seemed natural that, that the girls from my high school went to Hollins or to Randolph Macon Woman's or wherever they went. It was a very parochial kind of environment. Uh, and it seemed equally natural that uh, I would come to school here. Uh, and I had some support from my parents in that. Uh, the only collegiate institution east of Richmond when I was a boy was William and Mary College. And that, that sort of says something about the, the nature of opportunity in the US uh, between, let's say, the end of World War II and the mid-60s. Uh, the only uh, public opportunity for African-American students when I was growing up was Virginia State at Ettrick, Virginia. Yeah. Norfolk State evolved uh, while I was in school. I taught piecemeal here and there for a year while I was in graduate school. And one of the places where I worked was an institution in Princess Anne, Maryland called Maryland State College, yeah. which became the 1890 land-grant college of the University of Maryland by virtue of a move made by the Maryland legislature to avoid desegregating uh, in the late 70s, early 80s when the Adams orders yeah. went out. I was fascinated by the excellence of that place, by the determination and integrity of the faculty and the students but also by a few sort of jaundiced older colleagues who said, this is never gonna work. And I listened to their uh, descriptions of what they saw as the, uh, the failure of the American dream, I guess. Uh, at the same time, I was teaching in a, what was then a two year branch college of the University of Virginia 
on the Eastern shore and was teaching farm kids and so on. I, I had a, an intellectually superb Mennonite student who would occasionally stop and talk to me, but at one point she stopped and she said that she could not read an assigned book. Uh, I've forgotten what it was. It was one of the sort of adolescent maturation books you assign in freshman writing courses. And I said, well, okay, why don't I give you a different book to read? I didn't have any interest in imposing a reading list on and she got interested in Henry James. Hmm. And as long as I had contact with her, she was a, a middle-aged farm wife by that time. She was reading Henry James and was thinking about Henry James's issues and so on. Um, not quite approving of Henry James, which was fine too. Yeah. I'm not sure I quite approve of Henry James. Well, but, I think this is a, a, a theme, John, that, um... I deeply appreciate about you. You have um, always, I think, been a supporter of the underdogs. Um, and your devotion to the college at Wise was um, an incredibly powerful um, example of that. But it, it, you know, just hearing about um, you know, your experiences at you know, what is today Maryland Eastern Shore, um, I, you know, uh, yeah. that. Yeah. Again, it comes back to this thematic of championing those who have not had privilege and not had access and not had power. And wow, uh, yeah. you know, it's 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 an extraordinary um, legacy of yours. And I want to thank you for being with us. I want to thank you for championing and taking chances on. Marsha and me and and, um, um, and and countless generations of others who have very had generous. You're, very, you're generous, Jake. Thank you. In truth, I'm not sure that I did much other than say, there's the door, open it. Uh, I, I, uh, that will save that for another show. Um, I, well, I, and I, and I seriously do think about this. Why the heck did you turn to a 32 year old kid, um, uh, to, uh, to take on a sticky situation? And that might be worth a, uh, another conversation, uh, someday because I think about my obligations to be doing the same and, and, and to championing, um, uh, the risks um, that I know that you took in, in, in creating leadership opportunities for, for folks like me and many others. Um, well, so I, I, I think I got that one right. <laughs> well, I don't, and I think you and Marsha got it right. So, <laughs> well, um, I thank, thank you very much. Um, listeners, we welcome your suggestions and thoughts for leaders we should feature in upcoming segments. You can send those to leadershippodcast at academicsearch.org. You can find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you find your podcasts. It's also available on the Academic Search website. Leaders on Leadership is brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. Together, our mission is to support colleges and universities during times of transition through leadership development activities that serve current and future generations of leaders in the academy. Again, it's been a really special joy and pleasure to have John Castine on our program today. John, thank you 
again for joining us. Thanks for inviting me.